Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be continuing in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We're going to finish up uh, chapter 1 today. Um, I'm in the dark, I think. Well, I know. I know I am. It's okay. It's all right to feel that way. I feel that way myself sometimes. Um, and so maybe you've been joining us. We're in our, this is our kind of our fourth week here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we kind of took a break last week for Student Weekend, and, and Hunter taught on uh, Romans 12, this idea of uh, transformed life. Uh, we got to see that in, obviously, in Samantha Meyerhofer today, a transformed life and what that looks like. Uh, we're going to see another picture here of a transformed life, I believe, here in the text today. But before we kind of dive in, I want to remind you, because one of the things that's very important for us in our preaching is that, that, that you're learning and you're understanding uh, how to study, maybe how to look at the Bible, how to, um, you know, to know things when you read something. We, we feel more comfortable when we know something about a book or we know a little bit more history about it. And so I want to ask you a couple questions. And for those of you that have been with us, you should be able to answer these two questions. Uh, and maybe if you've not been, you'll learn something this morning. So we, we, the title of this gospel is called The Gospel of Mark. Did Mark, so, but Mark wrote this, but he really was writing on behalf of someone else. Who was that other person? Peter. That's right. You, you have such boldness when you say that. Uh, who was he writing for? Peter. There we go. Um, and so Peter is really the one, he, he's made friends with this young man named John Mark, um, and we see that in Scripture, I won't get into all of that, we see he's kind of befriended this guy, in fact he calls him his spiritual son a little bit, and we think, obviously as the years go on, Peter now is recounting everything that, that has happened in the, his experience with Jesus, his, when he walked with Christ and all the things that happened, and Mark is writing down the account for Peter, Right? And now we believe that there's inspired word of God. So even though Mark is the one writing it on behalf of Peter, we look at it as the inspired word of God is holy, it is true, it is right. Um, and, and so this is this picture that's happening. And so when, I just want you to remember that because as, as you think about this, as we go through this, this is really Peter's experiences and the things that he saw and witnessed in his life when he was walking with Christ. So, who was, it's always important to know who a book was written to, who was the audience, because that is going to determine why it was written the way it was written. So who was the book written to intentionally? Gentiles, that's right. And you may say, who are Gentiles? Anybody that's not a Jew. So anybody that wasn't Jewish is a Gentile. And so we believe that this letter was primarily written to the the kind of the people in Rome, to the, maybe the church and those people in Rome. It was an, a gospel that was going to highlight who Jesus was, but didn't go into all the details about Jesus' uh, heritage, his, the Jewish customs and all those things. It didn't matter to them as much. They just needed to know that this guy claims to be God. He's the Messiah. He has power. He has authority. He is changing people's lives. He has said he's the Messiah, come from you know, the God of Abraham. And, and so this is the picture that the that they're starting out with. And so it's being written to a, a Gentile audience, and it's the shortest, one of the shortest, I think it's the shortest gospel, and as well, it is the most translated book, right, of all time, because missionaries have used this to preach and to teach and to take the gospel into the, to the known world. And so I just want to encourage you to think that way as we kind of dive back in here. So to get your heads back in the game, 
here we are in the book of Mark. So what did we first see? That Jesus in his ministry, he's been baptized by, in the Jordan by John the Baptist. He's met a couple guys, uh, Simon Peter and, and Andrew and some people. Uh, then we think maybe a year passes and he maybe has some interaction with them from time to time. They are following Jesus' teaching. Uh, John has told them, John the Baptist has said, look, that's the Lamb of God. Jesus is now doing ministry um, in the countryside around Jerusalem, what we call Judea. And then we find ourselves last week up in Capernaum. And Capernaum is in northern uh, Israel, what we call the area of Galilee, which is a, a big region of the country there. And there's a Capernaum that's a city right there um, at the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus shows up. And two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus is there, and he calls four guys that we names, right? Uh, James and John, and, and obviously Peter and Andrew, from their boats, they're fishing along the Sea of Galilee, and he calls them, and they get up, and they actually follow him. They, they leave their nets. We think that's a literal thing that's happening there, and they knew who he was. They, he was probably even friends with them, but at some point now, he's calling them and saying, now it's time to come with me, right? And so they do. They leave their nets. They leave their family. They leave their profession, and they begin to follow him, and then we pick it up on the Sabbath there in Capernaum, and Jesus is teaching for the first time there in the synagogue, and one of the things that remind you again is that when he's able to preach in the synagogue, God has providentially put this timing together here in, in the world, the known world at that time, that there were synagogues located all sorts of places. Any, any community that had 10 Jewish men over 13 years old had a synagogue, had a place where there was the teaching of the, the Torah, Torah and reading of Scripture and so Jesus could go into any of those places and teach. And they were in modern-day Turkey. When, when Actually, when Paul goes, and, um, goes up into modern-day Turkey on his mission trips, there's synagogues in many of these places. And so Paul can go in and teach and preach in these places. What a perfect way to present the gospel to the known world at the time. There was a pulpit available everywhere you went almost. And he could teach and he could preach to, the, to whoever was there, whether it was Jews or if it was Gentiles that were coming to hear what was going on. And so here we see this, that he's in Capernaum, he gets up on the Sabbath, and he teaches. And what's the response? They're overwhelmed by his ability. He teaches with authority. He teaches with something they've never seen a rabbi do before. And we looked at that, and we kind of tore that apart last two weeks ago, and we said, why is that? Because he's been there. He is God. He knows. He is the text. It's it's. I mean, you can only imagine, I think I used the example a couple weeks ago, like I could tell you what it's like to be an astronaut and what it's like to you know, be on the moon, but I've never been there. If an astronaut came and he'd been there, he could tell you and share experiences that there's no way I could begin to share with you. And so here Jesus is sharing with authority. And then what do we say? Not only that, but there's a, a demon-possessed man that enters the synagogue and he's there and, and Jesus basically casts the demon out and tells him to be silent. And so what was the takeaway from two weeks ago? It was that Jesus' authority and power are undeniable, right? That's, that's what we left with at the end of two weeks ago. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Now, you can deny it, but if you really honestly, I believe, look at it, it's undeniable. But our hearts are so hard, we can always deny something. We can say things, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. I mean, we see that in the world. You watch, watch the news, watch the world news, watch, watch what's happening in our Congress. I mean, things that are clear, people are saying, no, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. That's not right. It's everywhere. It just goes to show the condition of the human heart. 
And so now what do we see here? We pick it up in verse 35, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Now we're thinking that this is the next morning after the Sabbath. Doesn't say, it, there could be time that has passed, we're not sure, um, but just we're kind of looking at it chronologically here. And so here we pick it up in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, assuming that it is the next morning after the Sabbath, right? And it says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So, now think about this for a second, yeah. and, and we'll see this, but he, he gets up early in the morning, uh, it's been a long day before because all the people there in Capernaum have come and they wanted to be healed and they've, they wanted him to hear him, and, and he gets up before it's daylight, and he goes out to a desolate place and he prays. So what I, what I want to do is I just want to talk a little bit about, there are imperatives in Scripture. An imperative is when the scripture tells us we must do something, right? We must do it. Here, as Jesus is talking and or we're looking at prayer here, there's not really an imperative, but everything around the text, and this goes in many places in the text, is pointing to the fact that we should be people of prayer, right? And so while he doesn't give it an imperative in the same way he gives a command about other things, there is this Reality that if we're going to follow Christ, prayer is absolutely necessary. And we'll see that here in a little bit. So it says early in the morning. Now, I know a lot of people will say, well, you know, there's a ton of books out there about prayer and how to structure your prayer. I talked to someone after first service um, that's kind of struggling in their prayer life. And, and there's tons of books. I don't know that there's a specific thing that you must do, right? Jesus in I think six, uh, Matthew chapter 6, when he talks about here's how you pray, and he gives the example of the Lord's Prayer. There is a structure, but prayer is a, a conversation with God that we have any way we can be standing, talking. I can pray, actually, when I'm preaching. I, I sometimes will pray a little bit, you know what I mean? You ask me for wisdom and, and all those things. We can pray kneeling. We can pray sitting down. We can pray in our quiet spot. And there are certain principles that are very helpful to, to implement in our life. We maybe even call them spiritual disciplines. But here Jesus gets up very early in the morning, and he goes out while it's still dark. So the question is, do I have to get up early in the morning while it's still dark to pray? I would say no. No, I don't think that God is saying that that's what we must do. I think it's a great idea. I don't think most of us probably do that. Most of us haven't implemented that in our prayer life. One of the things I want to be real careful is I'm not trying, I'm not going to add, I don't want to make a list of things that as believers we must do to please God. That's, that's not the point. Our prayer life should be something we desire, something we want to spend time with. It'd be a little bit like if I had to make a list for you to spend time with your spouse and things that you should do. No, you should want to do that, and there are certain principles that are helpful in your marriage or in your relationship with someone to your children that help you in that relationship. And so I want you to just kind of be encouraged by some of the things that we see here in Christ's example about what it means and the priority of his life. And so I'll read you a text or a quote here from Charles Spurgeon. It says, look no man in the face till thou hast seen the face of God. Speak thou with none till thou hast had speech with the Most High. Now, I know that's very King Jamie, King Jamesy, 
Um, but what is, what is Spurgeon saying? He's just saying, look, before you get out of bed or after you get out of bed, before you start your day, make sure that you come before the Lord. Make sure that He is the first priority in your life. You say, Raleigh, you don't, you don't know my life. No, you're right, I don't. But I know that I know my own life. My own life is busy. But when my alarm goes off or before I get up, before I even my feet ever touch the floor, I am trying to pray while I'm still in bed. Let me give you some thoughts on that. Would you agree that the world is constantly pulling us away from Christ, pulling us away from the principles or the, the truths of Scripture? Everything about the world when we get up, every people that we know, even good people that we know, are constantly wanting time from us or constantly want us to think this or think that. The world is filled with, with advertisements and agendas. And, and when we get up in the morning, it's telling us how we should live. It is telling us which direction we should go and what we should do and what we should think. Our phones are tied to us constantly. The TV, the radio, we get in the car, we turn the radio on, we get up in the morning, the first thing we do, we grab our phone. It's constantly telling us what to think and how to believe. And, and what I'm trying to encourage, I think what the, the example that Jesus has given us here is that you need to orient your life immediately when you get up for the day. You need to make sure that what you're thinking and your worldview, Samantha talked about this a little bit, her worldview has changed. And so when she says, I, I think differently, I have different conversations with people now, but the whole world is going to be constantly pushing against that. And so one of the things I think that Jesus is demonstrating here is when we get up in the morning, the first thing we want to do is we want to set our compass. We want to say, no, this is, this is what I believe, this is where I'm going. And what helps us is when we come and we humble ourselves before the creator of the world and we rightly put ourselves in that relationship and understand that he is God. That changes how you'll live the rest of your day. The problem is many of us won't, don't do that. We just get up and we start our day and then we're, we're susceptible to all of these other thoughts because and, and, we haven't focused on something. Many years ago when I was in my 20s, I've shared this probably in years past, um, we went out to Yosemite National Park, beautiful you know, park, and, and uh, we were very young and we were backpacking and we were going to hike in, uh, no trails. Uh, we just had a topographical map. We had to hike several miles and it was over and up and down through the hills, and, and we were going to come to the top of the canyon, and then we could see the waterfall that drops off. I mean, it was just absolutely breathtaking. So what did we do? Did we just say, well, let's just start walking and see if we get there? No. We got the topograph and map out, and what, what else did we have? We had a compass. And we said, okay, this is the way we need to go. We need to go this direction. We orient where north is at. We use the compass, and we see, and then we sight our way, and we say, okay, that tree on, the, on that Mountain over there, that's where we're going. Set your sights on that. And we, we start going. And once we got to that tree, what do you think we did? We got the compass back out. We set a new sight and said, okay, that's where we're going. And we walked to that. And eventually, you know, we got there. We got there right to where we needed to be, right at the top of the falls, right where the water drops off. Because we kept orienting ourselves to the map, to the compass. And so the similar thing is when you get up in the morning, your life is going to go somewhere. You're going to follow some path that day. And, and what I think we can take away from this passage is that we need to make sure that we're oriented in our life towards what the Lord wants and make sure that he is the thing that we are looking at and saying, okay, I'm going there. That's what I'm about. I'm about bringing him glory. I'm about living for him. That's what I profess. That's what I want. 
He's the most important thing. He's my savior, my master. And so here I think he's given a great example about that. And I will tell you that while I appreciate Spurgeon's quote here, probably more um, culturally um, <laughs> something that we could look at more culturally for us that may be good as an example for us is pray before you pick up your phone in the morning. I don't know about you, but my phone is right beside my bed. It's plugged in. It's, it's on constantly, 24 hours a day. I can access it. Um, you know, obviously we say, well, there may be an emergency, this, that, and the other. And at times that does happen, not a whole lot. Most things are not an emergency. The first thing, a lot of times, if I'm not careful, the first thing I want to do is reach over and check the news. I want to check the weather. I want to see if I get any texts, any emails, right? It's early in the morning. Well, I don't need to know that at that particular moment. I check the stock market, and I don't even have any money in the stock market, right? Um, uh, and I, I guess I'm just envious about people. I like to see people that are winning and losing and, you know, thinking all that kind of stuff. A, f- a few months ago, or well, several months ago, uh, Met, Meta stock, the old Facebook, was like at 200 and some dollars. And, you know, like I said, I don't have any money to end anything. So it dropped all the way to 90 bucks. And I told my wife, I said, if we had any money, we should buy that. But I said, I don't really believe in anything that Mate is doing really, so I wouldn't buy it even if it was, so I can't really do it. But today it's over $330 a share. Man, I should be a financial advisor, right? Could have tripled or quadrupled your money. So my point is, is that we, we get interested in things that really don't matter. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have any money in the market, and yet it, I check it all the time. You know, I just want to see what's happening in the world. I, ch- I read news articles that, that are, I mean ridiculous, right? That have no bearing in my life. In fact, they're probably not healthy for me even to read, right? They're distracting. They're tempting me. I mean, if you're on your phone, and I'm just speaking for a guy, right? There's also sports. I can get sucked into a half hour reading about sports, about people making millions of dollars and who gets to play and who doesn't get to play and what this play was. And, and yet I don't, I don't spend a half hour with Jesus. That's just not right. And I know it. Then there's temptations. There's, if you're a social media person or if you're a, a news, even on news, I mean, there's articles that are salacious and gossipy and, and sexual in nature and, and, and we're tugged to go that direction. And so I need to make sure that I've oriented my life early in the morning and then begin to say, no, I'm not even gonna go there because that doesn't align with where I'm going. And it helps me stay away from those things. And so pray before you pick up your phone. Orient your life. And then obviously it says that he was alone. He went out to a desolate place. Jesus needed to get away from people. He needed to get away from his apostles, away from everybody. Everything that just happened possibly that day that that he heals all these people and he teaches in in the synagogue and he does all these things and he gets up early because he knows that when everybody starts waking up, he's gonna be the guy again, right? Everybody's gonna wanna come and want a piece of him. Even probably the people that are following him, his disciples, right? And so he goes and he wants, and why? Because he wants to be alone with his father. Now just let that sit in for a second. This is the mystery here. Jesus is God in the flesh. But yet he wants to be alone with God the Father. There's something wonderful and beautiful about that. He longs to be with his father. We see it all over the place. He wants to do the will of his father. He, John chapter 17, his, his great high priestly prayer, it was just incredible. 
where he talks to his father. And, and, and most of the time, we don't see what Jesus is praying, but that one, we see it. And so what I kind of take away from that is, look, we need to be alone. We, we can pray together in here, and, and we should, and we should pray as a body, and we should pray as families and, and couples, and we should do. And I don't do well at that. I don't do well praying with my wife, to be honest with you. But we should make sure that we have time alone with God. Right? If Jesus needs time alone with the Father, man, how much more do we need time alone with God? And I'm not, I'm not trying to put a burden on you. I'm not trying to say, hey, you need to spend hours and hours every morning. I'm saying, no, start somewhere. Start with 10 minutes. Say, look, I'm going to set my alarm just 10 minutes earlier. I, I'm not going to do social media. You, you could pick up an hour in the morning if you did that, right? You, you just, I'm just going to go here. I'm just going to spend some time here. Maybe you need to get up and go into another room and close the door and put a chair in a special room. And, and maybe you need to go outside and sit on your porch, whatever it may be, and commit to doing that. I don't do well at it. I've been very convicted over the last several, several months about my prayer life. And so I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to, I'll pray for you as a congregation. You pray for me that God will encourage us and lead us into that type of prayer. Luke chapter, 15, or chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, I think is saying the same thing about the same event. It's just in a different gospel. It says, now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. What's it say? But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray, right? Desolate place and pray. So what do we see here? I think the first thing I want to just take away from that passage is that Jesus models the importance of prayer. He doesn't command it here. He's just modeling it. And we need to look at the life of Christ and say, if, that's, if he's doing that and he's modeling that, maybe that's something that, that I should follow in, right? Maybe I should follow in that. He models it. And, and prayer should be something that we desire to do, right? Should we desire to do? We should desire to be with him. Now, I've read a lot of commentaries over the years, and sometimes people just add things where they shouldn't. And I'm sure I've done that at times. So the question is, what was Jesus praying about? We don't know. It, that's one of those things that like, I just ponder about. Like there's all these passages that Jesus went away and prayed in a quiet, desolate place. What was he talking to Father about? He's God in the flesh. Fully man, fully God, fully divine. Was he asking for assistance? Was he, I mean, what was he praying about? And, and some... Some commentators will tell you what he was praying about. I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> don't, don't try and say something that you don't know. And so I'm going to tell you that I don't know. I will tell you some things that are possible, maybe. First and foremost, there's just a, re- a relationship and intimacy that I think, like when I want to spend time with my wife, I don't need a reason. I just want to be with her, right? Because I love her. And so I think that's the primary thing. He just wants to be with his father, right? Maybe another one is he's, he's wanting strength for the day ahead. Now think about this. There's a lot of mornings that you and I wake up and we're like, okay, how do we, there's a lot to do today. I have a lot of responsibilities today. And I'm asking God for strength and courage and all those things. You know, in his human flesh, Jesus got tired. In his human flesh, he was tempted. And so possibly that Jesus is going before the Father and saying, you know, in my flesh side, I, I, need, I need you to guide me. I need strength. I need, I need to be able to do this. I need wisdom. His ministry is really just getting started here, and I need your wisdom, Father. Help me to know what to do. 
And you say, well, what do you mean know what to do? He's God. And yet, Jesus tells us later that he doesn't know the day or the hour that his father's gonna, that he's coming back. Something is a mystery there that Jesus is God, but maybe doesn't know everything that's going to happen because he's in the flesh. He's left the throne room. He gave up that, as it says in, in Ephesians, right? Or Philippians. He's left the throne room and come down, Philippians chapter 2, and, and, and he, he's confined himself to a fleshly body. That doesn't mean he doesn't have power. It doesn't mean he has authority, but there's something different. When he, someone touches his garment, he says, who touched me? Well, you think, well, don't you know? <laughs> like, you're God. So there's a bit of a mystery there. And I think it shows a bit of his humanity. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. I think this is a great thing to help orient us a little bit in prayer. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so remember I said, it's not an imperative. Here, these, this rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks to all. I want you to notice something. That, that pray without ceasing, we'll first start there. I think that means that, that our whole life should just be centered around our need, our dependence, our conversation with God. And it doesn't matter what we're doing, we can talk to him. Whether we're driving, whether we're at work, whether we're at school, whether we're, we're in worship together, it doesn't matter. God is part of our conversation. He's part of our fellowship. We are with him. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Like there's an intimacy here that surpasses all other intimacies. And so it's just always he's with us. So we should have that relationship that's ongoing constantly. But notice, I found it interesting, the text says three things. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks for all circumstances, or in all circumstances. Church, if we could do those three things, if we could rejoice always, notice the three things he's, he's saying are always doing this. Rejoice always. So as a believer, we're saved. We should rejoice always. Right? It, it's, it's Philippians chapter 4. Right? Rejoice always. I say again, rejoice. Right? Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. Rejoice always. We're saved. Like, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what sickness, no matter what calamity, no matter what happens in world politics and world war, we are saved for eternity. God has saved us. Rejoice always. As Christians, we should have that view. Have a constant conversation with God. Pray without ceasing. Have this open dialogue all the time. He is our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. He is our Master, our Messiah. He's our Savior. He lives in, inside of us. He is the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. He's the one that has saved us. We should have this open conversation. And then it says, and give thanks in all circumstances. So no matter what happens to you, you should be grateful and thankful. Why? Just like you can rejoice because no matter what, everything is a gift. Our freedom is a gift. Our life is a gift. The air we breathe, Hunter talked about it last week, as he sings, it's a gift. Everything is, is a gift to us. We don't deserve any of it. And yet, so if we, church, if we could do those three things, if we could live a life of rejoicing, if we could live a life of, of just constant fellowship and, and, and interaction with God, and we could be thankful in all things, man, wouldn't the church be a different place? Oh my gosh, if we could just... Hold on to those three things and live those three things out. What does it say there in the rest of the text? For this is the will of God in Christ 
for you. It's what God wants of us. He wants us to have a spirit of rejoicing. He wants us to have a constant conversation with him, and he wants us to be thankful in all things. Man, that, you can pray that. You pray for that every day as you orient your life. Father, help me to rejoice in all things and remind me that you have saved me and I have nothing to fear, no matter what happens, right? That can be seen in Romans. Father, help me to have a dialogue with you. Help me to desire to spend more time with you. And Father, help, so I'm so grateful for all that you've done for me. If you can just write your life that way. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians as he's writing here at the end of the book of Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesian church after he talks about the, the armor of God here and picks it up in six, chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. It says, By praying, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Supplication just means to request, right? To, to make requests of God, to ask. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Okay, so what I take from that is, he's saying keep alert. Like, he just got done talking about that we're in battle, right? That, that this is what's going on in our life. You need to put on the armor of God, the, the sword of the spirit, the, the breastplate of righteousness, you know? Um, we, we need to have all of that, and we need to stay alert, and so one of the things that Jesus does, he says, when I get up in the morning, I'm going to make sure that I'm alert and I'm ready for the day and I'm prepared for my day because I'm going in to a world that is hostile to who I am. And, and every day as, as a Christian, you're getting up and you're going into a world that is hostile to who you are and what you believe. Now, it doesn't mean that you want to be hostile. You should love those people because you can rejoice always because you're a Christian, but you're going into a world that's hostile, that wants to think, make you think other things and not believe and question everything, right? And so here, it says, keep alert with all perseverance. And then it says, making supplication for all the saints, to pray for one another, like to pray for the church, to pray. I'll, I'll spend time sometimes in my prayer time praying for specific people in the church. Sometimes I pray for us as a whole, Right? Because even here he says, and also for me, Paul is saying, I want your prayers. And what does he pray for, right? What does he ask in prayer for? That the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I tell people all the time, if, if you're going to pray for Pastor Brian and I and the elders or, or people in your life, um, make sure that that prayer life is oriented in the right direction. In other words, yeah, if I'm in the hospital, I would love prayers for, for my health. But mostly as, as your pastor, as one of your pastors, Pray that God will help me be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. Help me to rightly discern it. That's, that's concrete prayers that, that Pastor Brian and I and the elders covet from you, right? Help us not to, to lead people astray in any way. Help us to make sure that we rightly discern the text. Help us to be loving. Help us to shepherd the flock well. Pray those things for us. That's what Paul is saying here. And Jesus models that. All right, we gotta keep going. Next verse, 36 and 38, through 38. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. First thing, I want to kind of say something. So that terminology there, it says, and Simon, this is Simon Peter, and those who were with him could have been John and, and the others, guys, right? We don't know. John and James and uh, uh, Andrew, we don't know. There was obviously other people that were probably there with him. 
But that text there, when it says they searched for him, in the Greek, really, it was they hunted. They were seriously looking for him. Now, think about this a minute. You just have been called to follow a guy, and you know he's an incredible teacher. He's healed a guy just the other day. He cast a demon out. He's preaching like nobody you've ever heard before. You go, everybody goes to bed one night. Everybody gets up in the morning, and they're so excited to see what is Jesus going to do today. And you go into his bedroom, and the bed's empty, and he's gone. How would you feel? Where'd he go? Did he leave? Is he coming back? And so they were frantic. Did someone come and take him? Like there were so many people that wanted him. Did, what, what happened to him? They, can't, they don't see him in the house anywhere. They don't see him outside. And, and so they frantically begin to search for him, right? And he, they finally find him. And he, they say, everyone is looking for you. Now we don't really know is, are the disciples just say, hey, everybody's looking for you like us are looking for you? Or is the whole town looking for you? I think the whole town is looking for him. Think about that. The day before, if it's truly chronological here and it's the next day, these people witnessed, everybody came to his house there in Capernaum or to Peter's house and his mother-in-law's house and, and did all of this, these miracles and he's preaching and the teaching and people are just being wowed by him. And the next morning, as soon as they get up, what do you think's on their mind? Let's go find him. I mean, let's go find him. Where's he at? And so the whole town is probably searching for him. And so the disciples here are saying, everyone's looking for you. Now, are the disciples saying, man, you gotta come back because we have this great opportunity, Lord, to, to teach these people and to disciple these people and, and you can heal more people and, and man, you're famous. I don't know if that's what they're thinking or not. I could see where that's possible. But do you notice how Jesus answers them? At least this is what's recorded for us. He doesn't give that any thought. He doesn't give that a response. He said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That, that word, that is why I came out. It's the, that's why I came forth, right? That's why, that's why I've been sent. That's why I've come, right? So what do we see here in the text? Jesus declares his mission, right? Jesus has clarity in his purpose, Clarity. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and it's so important for Christians to have clarity in our purpose in life. The world today gets us, thinks we have to do all things and we have to do them well. You know, I mean, even as pastors, you know, there's this, well, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. No, I'm not, I'm not wired to do all things well. I, I, I'm, I have other people that do things better than me. And, and yet we think we're a failure if we don't do all things well. Moms, I feel so sorry for some ladies because our culture has said, no, you have to, you have to be successful. You have to be a, a professional. You have to earn a great living. You have to be a great mother. You have to look a certain way. You have to be a wonderful wife. You have to do all these things. And, and as Christians, we need to say, no, what, is, what does God want from me? Where, where can I rest in him and, and trust in him? Jesus has no question about his mission. There's a clarity there. And I, I think about that as, as a church. We need to have a clarity about our mission. And, and I know as, as one of your pastors, that's my responsibility, and we need a clarity. And so one of the things that, that I will tell you already is the most important thing that we do here at the church is what? Is to teach. It's to teach. 
It is, the mo- it's, it is by far the most important thing of all things. Now, is, is doing the car clinic important? Yeah, it's good. Is, is working with Target Dayton good? Is helping Hope Rising good and helping, you know, single moms or, or you know, pregnant ladies to, to decide to bring? Yeah, absolutely. That's great stuff. But the most important thing is preaching the Word of God. It is the thing that transforms lives. It is the thing that, that makes disciples, right? And we need a clarity. So many churches can get pulled aside in very social things and say, no, we need to do this. No, we need, everybody's got an idea. Years ago, somebody said, you know what we ought to do? We need to put a workout room in, right? Is there anything wrong with having a workout room? Should Christians be fit? Yeah, we should be. You guys want an Olympic-sized pool? We can put one of those in too, right? Now think about that. What if the church has the funds to do that? Does that make it the right thing to do? No. Like the why is right down the street. Go to the why. There's a great pool down there. There's tons of workout machines. There's a workout place here in Brookville. Go and be part of the community and share the gospel with people that you can meet. Let's not be a holy huddle, right? Our job and our responsibility is the proclamation and the teaching of the gospel. The education of the saints, right? Now, that's not just from the pulpit. That is your responsibility as saints to do the work of ministry. Now, sometimes that is ministering to the poor and all those things are necessary and important. But our life group leaders, our D group leaders, our student ministry leaders, our children's leaders, we're teaching we're teaching. What does Jesus say here? I came, let us go to other towns that I may preach there also. I may teach, I may preach. It is the most important thing that he comes for. And you know, there's over 200 cities there at that time in Galilee, very densely populated cities. And Jesus says, the most important thing is I have to go tell them who I am and tell them that the scriptures predicted me and what, who I am and how I can affect their life. Clarity in the mission. All right, Mark 39. It says, he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So now he's just acting on this this authority that he has and this power that he has, and he begins to to do this, right? We see it again here in the same same event, I think, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, he went out through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what do we see here? Jesus is faithful in fulfilling his mission. He's faithful. He knows his mission, and he's faithful in it. Let that be said of us as a church. Let that be said as us as believers. We have, a, we have a mission. We call it the what? The Great Commission found in Matthew 28. What is it? To go and feed all the homeless people in the world. No. Is that a good thing? Yes. To go and make disciples. To go teach. To go teach Make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, right? Because that changes people's eternity. That, that puts more people than wanting to serve the poor. It makes more people that want to, to feed the poor, to help, and to do ministry. There has to be a priority and a, a vision for what's most important. And Jesus was faithful to that. In John 17 Verse 4, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. I'll just read this one verse. It says, Jesus, I glorified you on earth. This is him talking to his father. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, God the Father sent the Son for specific things. As believers, God has given us specific things in the world to do and to be. We're to be image bearers. We're to be witnesses. We're to be ambassadors, right? Right? 
We're to proclaim the good news. So when you pray in the morning, think about what God has put you on mission for. Sometimes you do that with your children. I mean, that's your mission, to, to raise them and teach them and disciple them. Sometimes it's at your work. Sometimes it's with your spouse. Sometimes it's here in some community, in a church. Get your focus. All right, we're going to shift gears here now. We go into verse 40. We see a leopard here. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, first I want to explain leprosy here in the, in the New Testament and, and kind of the, the history of it here. First of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what leprosy kind of meant. So first of all, leprosy was um, a skin disease, a horrific skin disease. There was many skin diseases, though. And so they, they didn't know that. They couldn't distinguish between all of them. So a lot of times, if you had a skin disease, they, they maybe thought you were a leper. But there were certain things that would happen, and you would... When that would happen, you'd get red spots and they would start to turn white and your hair would start to turn white. And I don't want to be too graphic here, but in leprosy, you basically, your skin and your flesh begin to rot and your joints rot and your fingers and your toes just fall off. It can happen in your eyes. You lose your hair. It is horrific. They didn't have a cure for it. There was other diseases, and so you would, when you got it, you would go to a priest. In fact, if you look back into to, uh, Leviticus chapter 13, long chapter in Leviticus 13 where Moses is instructing the priest how to diagnose it. And you would go to a priest, and there's this, all of these details about if this happens and this happens, and then this, and then this, and it's, it's really long. And once you got it in the New Testament here, if they said that you were unclean, your life was over for the most part. You were banished from the community. You could not be within six feet of anyone by the law. You were told to dress a certain way, which I'll read here in a second. Your family probably wasn't around you. You were totally isolated. They considered you, if you had leprosy, that you had sinned against God and he was punishing you with the most heinous thing possible. In fact, they viewed it as that you were a dead person walking. That's how they looked at you. And so here, we see this man that comes and this is who this man is. He has leprosy. If we look at Luke chapter 5, verse 12, I think it's the same, same story here in the other gospel. He says, while he was in one of the cities, there was a man that came full of leprosy. So he was probably covered in it. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Wow. So what did they command them to wear? Well, Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 says this. The leopardous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. No known cure. The Jews thought 
the only way to cure this is that God had to do it. There was no other cure for someone who had leprosy. They were living and dressing as people in mourning, as they would mourn with sackcloth, but really what they were mourning for is to say, no, you are mourning for yourself because you are dead. You are dead. So think about what this man is doing. He's breaking every religious law by coming to Jesus. He's not supposed to be there. He's come. He's crying out for help. He knows his only hope is getting to Christ. His only hope is knowing that this man can possibly heal me. In fact, what does he say there? He comes to him, imploring him, and kneeling. This idea of submission and realizing, if you will, you can cleanse me. He has this faith that we don't, he understands. Maybe it's because he knows other people have done it, and so he's just seen it demonstrated. He comes and he drops to his knees, and he implores Jesus. He says, I know you can. Will you? Now, I want you to think about this from a spiritual sense. I believe that this picture of someone with leprosy can be a spiritual picture here. We are all lepers. We all have a flesh disease. We are all, sin is decaying us in so many ways. And what Jesus is kind of demonstrating here through this story, I think that that God is showing us, is this man has no hope but Christ. And he comes and he throws himself down at his feet and says, Lord, I know you can. Will you? And we're going to see Jesus' response. But I just want to encourage you. Is, is that how you have responded to God? Like, you will do anything to get to him. Because you know that you are a leper. You're decaying. I'm decaying. Even in my, my saved state, even in my 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 state that my flesh is still decaying. It still wants things. It's, it's still tempted to do this and that. I need Christ. The only way that I can be healed. And notice what else here in the text. He doesn't ask for healing. He has to be cleansed. There's a difference. In that culture, he realized that, that the law had said that he was cursed by God, that he was He'd done something sinful. Obviously, that's why he has leprosy. And I don't think that's true, but that was their understanding. And so he's not saying, hey, can you heal me? He's saying, no, whatever it is, cleanse me. Heal me. Forgive me. Take this away from me. Take my sin away. And folks, believers, that's what we need. We need to come to God and say, okay, I, I want healed from heart disease. No, you know what? I would love to be healed from heart disease, but I am much more concerned about being cleansed by the Spirit of God and having my sin accounted or taken away, right? And, 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 and having God save me from that, from the penalty of my sin. And so here I think it's this picture that we see here in the text. There is no cure. In fact, I would argue that in the New Testament, as far as we can see, there's no leopard being healed until this point. And I think that's going to be significant. So let's see how Jesus responds. Moved with pity, 
he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Moved with pity. Your translation may say with compassion. If you have an NIV Bible this morning, it says he was indignant. Like what? How Jesus is indignant? And I read that, I'm like, because I was reading multiple translations and I'm like, how, how does this fit? Indignant, is he mad at this man for coming to him? Is he indignant that this man would break the law and come and, and want to be healed by him? No, that's not what, the, te- that's not what the, the scripture's trying to say. Jesus was indignant that sin was doing this to people, that the result of sin and the fall was causing leprosy to be so pronounced. He was indignant. He was angry at that, not at the man. And that's why many translators now have translated it to he had pity or he had compassion on him. And it says he stretched out his hand and he touched him. He wasn't supposed to touch the man. He could have healed the man without touching the man, right? He didn't need to touch the man. It was against the law to touch the man. Now what's interesting is once he touched the man, he was healed immediately. And so the question is, is that we'll prove it that he was a leper. I didn't break any law. He's healed, right? So they, they couldn't, there was no, nothing you could do to Jesus for doing it. But think about the, the intimacy that God is showing us here and his love for us. The most unclean, cast out, disregarded person in all of the community And Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. It's it's a picture of how we come needy to Christ. And and his love for us propels him to, to, to give us healing, to heal us. Not from just healing us, but to cleanse us from our sin. And so what do we see here is that Jesus' mission is rooted in love. He has a clarity of his mission. He's declared his mission, but his his mission is rooted in love, right? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In love, he's made us alive in Christ. And then in Mark 1, 43 through 44. And then Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, But go, show yourself to the priests and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. So this idea here again, he sternly charged him. I think Jesus is really saying, here's another one of these places where it's a little mysterious. Jesus sternly charges him to go tell no one. Now you could say, well, didn't Jesus know that he was going to tell somebody? Because he does go tell people. So why did he tell him not to do it? Did Jesus know? I don't know. Maybe in his flesh he didn't know. Why, was, why would he not want him to tell him? Tell anyone. A lot of people already knew. We don't know that exactly. Now we can kind of extrapolate from the context is that it's going to make him very difficult to go to any other town because everybody's going to come out because they know what he's doing. And Jesus constantly tells people, don't tell anybody. And I think he really meant, don't tell anybody. I don't think he was just doing that. That would be a lie. He's saying, don't tell anybody. And he strictly charges him. It was like commanded to this man. And so he goes and it says, see that you say nothing 
And he goes and tells people anyway. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he goes on here and he says, show yourself to the priests and offer yourself for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded. See, there was a, a ritualistic process that had to take place. That Even though it was all written down in Leviticus, they almost never did it because no one ever got healed. And so he says, so what you must do is you must go to the priest. Now, he's in Galilee, and there were priests there that had served at the temple, that they lived out in Galilee, and they would go for the Passover, and they would go to serve terms in the, in the temple. And so he could go to a priest and, and say, look, I'm clean. But then they would require him to go to Jerusalem, and there would be a a process you go through, and you can read that in Leviticus 14, and he has to do certain things, and he has to, there's, you know, scarlet yarn and hyssop and, and other things that they mix together, and then there's two birds, and one bird has to die, and the blood, and then there's other sacrifices. It's a big deal. Then you're outside the camp for several days, and then you're inside the camp. You have to shave your head. I mean, it's extensive. Why? Because what the Jews were saying is that this is so unclean, so unhealthy, so horrible that there's this great process that has to happen to cleanse you. And yet Jesus does it instantly. And so why does he send him to the priest? Why does Jesus command him to do that? Because first of all, Jesus wants him to be obedient to the law. Jesus isn't trying to skirt the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He wants him to be obedient to the law, to the Jewish law. Second of all, if this man goes before the priest and the only way someone can get healed was by God, and he goes, and he's a known leper, and he goes and he presents himself to the priest, what must the priest now have to confront? God must be present because this man has been healed. And this man is Jesus. Think about that. It, it was, Jesus knows I'm going to confront them and say, I did this. They'd already recognized that no one could be healed except for it was God, and now he's healed. And so Jesus, I think, is saying, go. I want them to know. I want them to know. I don't want everybody else to know, but I want you to confront the priests. And so we pick it up here in verse 45, the last verse. It says, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the question is, why did Jesus tell him not to? And then he did. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you what I think I can take from this. For those of you who are believers this morning, have been saved by the grace of God, would you agree that that is the most wonderful gift you could ever receive? And God asks you now to be obedient and not to, not to gossip, not to lie, not to be selfish. Don't you, shouldn't you be obedient in that? Absolutely. How many of you have been obedient in that? Mm. He just saved you from eternal damnation and gave you eternal life. You should be obedient in everything you should do for the rest of your life. But your flesh can't do it, can it? It can't do it because it, at the core, it, it's still rotten to glorification. I think that's a picture here. I think that's something we can take away and say, look, the reason this guy couldn't do it is because he's, he's human. He's, he's, he can't do it. God can do the most thing. This guy has been almost brought back from the dead, and Jesus gives him one thing to do. Keep your mouth shut, and he can't do it. 
It's kind of like, why has the law been given? The Ten Commandments. To know that we are sinful. This is a picture of that saying, don't do it. And he goes and it tells us he does it. It's, it's a picture of our fallen flesh. Now that's my interpretation of the text. If you have something else you want to share with me, I would be open to that. But he freely began to talk and spread the news that Jesus could no longer openly enter town. This wasn't good for Jesus. Jesus is saying, this isn't helpful for me. So it wasn't like Jesus went, yeah, I, I told you not to, but I really wanted you to. No, that's, you're, you're putting things into the text there. No, Jesus didn't want him to do it, and he did it anyway. And it made it harder for Jesus. And so I've got two takeaways for you as we close. First, for a Christian, prayer must be a way of life. Not a way of life. It must be a way of life. If you're a Christian, you have to have conversation with God on a regular basis. If, if, if you're not, then I would argue that you're, you're not a Christian. I understand your prayer life may not be what you want it to be. My prayer life is not what I want it to be. But I think every day we should be talking to God. There's plenty of things to thank him for. There's plenty of, 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 of glory that we can give him. I mean, I just, I just watch things all the time and see things all the time. As I shared a couple weeks ago, I just look outside. Just spend a few minutes being quiet off your phone. And look at what God has done in the world. The creation itself is screaming him. The other night, we, last night, I have this little app on my phone. There you go. Um, the space station was flying over, right? I can see when as I went out, and it was available for about two minutes, zipping by in the sky. And I just gave glory to God. Not for the space station, but for the heavens. <laughs> I mean, like, we're just... It's just this little tiny thing flying by at probably 14,000 miles an hour, zipping by. Like the technology even do that, this comes from God. The, I mean, and yet we are just a speck in the universe, right? Just be in all of that. And so be in prayer. Takeaway number two, everyone needs cleansed, right? We're all lepers to start with. And only Jesus has the power to do it. That's the, just what the text is saying. The, the leopard, I think, really represents sinners. It is the judgment of sin. It's not that the leopard did anything. It's a picture of the, of the sin and the decay that happens because of sin. And we're put outside the camp. Well, we see it in Genesis. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? He kicked them out of the garden, right? There's this separation that happens because of sin. And everything are, are pictures of this. And everyone starts out that way. Like I said, Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our sin. By nature, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But God, who's rich in mercy and love, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can do this. So the question I have for you is, do you see yourself with a disease? Sin. Do you see yourself that way? See, the, the advantage the leopard had is it was clear. Maybe his fingers were falling off. He had huge sores. His new de he knew death was imminent. So he was desperate. My concern is that for many of us, life is so good, we're not desperate for Jesus. We think we're going to live forever. I know that's not, you know that's not true, but... You just ignore it. You stick your head in the sand and you just think it's all going to be good. 
In fact, this lady that came up to me at the pastor's corner, she said, I'm ready to take the next step. And I said, and she said, yesterday was a very emotional moment. And I said, well, you know, what was it? She said, my, my young child was sick. And she said, but it was really bad. But she said, I felt helpless at that moment. And I looked at my child, and I was like, I can't do anything for it. And she said, I just, there was a reality of, of, of sickness and disease, which, which I think really embodies our state. I mean, everywhere. I've said before, when you look at weeds in a garden in your flower bed, it's sin. I mean, there's so many things that are screaming that this is the reality of our world, sickness, disease, and death, and war, and weeds, all of it. It's telling us that we're, we have a disease, and it's called sin, and there's only one way to be made cleansed by this, and that is Jesus. That's the point. And so the question is, do you see yourself? Can you look in the mirror and rightly say, no, man, I am, as Paul would say, I am the worst of sinners. Because until you do, you will not find grace sweet. He is the cure. I would encourage you, once you see him, throw yourself at his feet. He's able. He's willing if we will just come. If we will just acknowledge him. Romans 1 says, though, we believe the lie. We don't want to come. We don't want to acknowledge him. Samantha said it. I mocked him. But when she came, he was not only able to cleanse her, he was willing. Leave you with this verse. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the richness of it, the depth of it, the clarity, and I even thank you for the mystery at times, Father, because you're an infinite holy God, and there's no way that we can ever fully understand and comprehend who you are. And so Scripture shows that, that there are things that we just can't comprehend. But there's also so many things that you're crystal clear about. One of them is, is that we have a disease, and it is sin. And that there is no cure for it here on earth. But you came, and you brought the cure in your son. That you would take upon our sickness, upon yourself. And you would... Pay the price for us so that we could be made alive and spend eternity with you. Father, help that truth overwhelm us this morning. Help us to orient our life every morning towards you, the living God that has created all things, who's hung the stars and the planets and the moon, who's given life holds life. Father, our hope is in you. May we lay and throw ourselves at your feet this morning as this leopard did. May our faith be so that we know you have the power and we're grateful that you are willing. 
Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.